Healthcare does great in a crisis. We're built for a crisis. We love crisis, you know, bring it on. But what do you do in the aftermath of the crisis? That's where things can fall apart. The pandemic has pushed people to their limits. Leaders need to help their teams find ways to heal and move forward. I'm Rebecca Mutter, and this is Moments Move Us, a people-first podcast unlocking the power of meaningful moments by bringing you stories that inspire. Healthcare workers run at full speed, mostly because they have to, especially now, and that takes a serious toll. Dr. Anita Gerard, the Chief Nursing Officer for Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, says the caring process has to start with self-care. And while filling your cup requires a consistent commitment, it doesn't have to be dawning. In this episode, Anita shares a number of micro practices that you can use to take better care of yourself and ultimately your team and patients. Let's jump into the conversation, starting with Anita's winding path into healthcare. How I got into healthcare, that's a long one. It's been a 30 year plus journey for me. So it started out, I grew up in Northern Minnesota on a, on a dairy farm. It was a wonderful growing up experience. And then I was the first generation college, fell in love with nursing right away. thought I wanted to go be a physical therapist, but then took that wonderful exam that we all get to take when you're in college to figure out which job and career is the best for you. And it was like, oh, you're way too global. Nursing would be amazing for you. You'd like to interface with multiple different people. And wow, is that ever spot on? Because I've I've gotten to have these grand adventures in nursing. I've done everything from rehab nursing, home health nursing, to all the way to ICU nursing and nursing administration and marketing and all kinds of different quality and all kinds of different great career paths. So just a wonderful career choice. I encourage lots of people to go into the profession. If you have that kind of dynamic personality where you like things changing pretty much every single day, which I love, there's kind of no stability. And in that, it really... um, keeps my energy fresh and keeps me eager to come to work every day to solve problems for humanity and for healthcare. Absolutely. And how exciting is it that one of those tests was actually correct? Because I know that I did one of those tests in high school and it was like, you should be a farmer. My mind was blown because I was basically in cities my whole life. So (laughs) that's impressive though, that they were able to kind of hone in on your passion. And then, you know, I was fortunate enough, I had a wonderful leader when I was in, in the ICU. Suna Kimkin was a great mentor. She was my nurse manager at the time. And I believe, you know, you have to find mentors in your career. It's absolutely essential. They'll help help introduce you to things that you yourself might have never even thought of or seen. And she said, oh, it's time for somebody to go back to school. And I'm like, what do you mean? I have two kids. I'm not going back to school. And she actually sent me a flyer and a reference letter, which I do all the time now for people. I pay it forward. She sent me the flyer from the school and the program that she had even investigated and found out for me, and then a reference letter to that school and said the application deadline is in two weeks. You better get going. And I applied to that school at the University of San Francisco and got accepted into their master's program. And it changed my career trajectory. So it's just amazing how important it is to get outside your box, uh, find people, have mentors. We always call it have your panel of experts surrounding you, right? So that you can bring them different questions of your career path that are ahead of you. You haven't been there yet, you know, so they can help answer and introduce you to people. And I've now have gotten the privilege of introducing mentoring platforms into most of the institutions that I've been with so and organizations. So it's been really exciting to kind of pay that all forward. That really is exciting. And what a 
sort of forward pressing mentor to not just hand you an application be like, here, I think you should try this, but here's also a recommendation letter that I took the time to write about you. So you had a little bit of guilt, I think there of like, okay, really better do this. (laughs) This person invested in me. Yeah. We all know how long it takes to actually write a letter, right? So you're like, oh, okay, I better do this. (laughs) But that little nudge and push is always a good thing. And I also think about mentoring and women in leadership and how important that is for us to kind of lift up those that that come in the next generation. Can you share a little bit about the way you mentor people and what you think helps really move the mark on that? Because I've had some very important mentors in my life that totally transformed my career early on. And it sounds like your mentor did that for you. Yeah, I like to always be seeking out those opportunities whenever I round with people, whether I'm rounding at a movie theater and waiting in line and talking to people, or whether I'm on a unit talking to some of my clinical staff. And I think the first part of mentoring is listening. You know, one being have a really good leadership toolkit yourself in whatever field that you're in so that you can kind of hear those key words from people and say, oh, that perked my interest. I think that you'd be really excellent in going into, you know, working with the Association of California Nurse Leaders because there's leaders there. And I can even think of Patty. She'd be an excellent mentor for you. And so I think the first responsibility lies with yourself to kind of get that plethora of goodies (laughs) in your toolkit so that you're connected to the environments that you want to try to connect other people to. And then just listen listening to what their wants and needs and desires are. And I always feel like it's a little bit of pinball, you know, it's like a little tap on the right shoulder to tap on the left shoulder, like, oh, you're kind of heading down the right path, but have you thought of this and thought of that? And in doing that, you can really allow them to have a more robust experience than they would have had for themselves. So I think it starts with you and then it, it second is listening and then really following up with them. So I usually kind of tap back on people and say, well, we talked like a month ago and you said that you were going to, how's that going? Is there anything that you need from me? So that's my favorite. Definitely. And as a mentor, it's so important to hear, did your advice play out and what happens? And when you hear that it went well, or that even if that it didn't, or that nothing has transpired, it's like, okay, well, what can we do differently? Or how can we get ahead of it? But I think that follow-up pieces. It's really important for the mentee and the mentor. Yeah. And I also think some soothing comes along like, oh, you just had a brand new baby. This might not be the perfect time for you to take on that new career challenge. You know, So also mentoring is not just introducing new ideas, but also I think soothing people into the, you're at the perfect place you should be in your life right now in this moment. So just enjoy this moment that you're in and the next moment like it will create itself. So we, you don't have to worry about that right now. I love how you said, and the next moment will create itself. So just kind of stay in the moment that you're in and recognize that. You shared with me really a a transformative experience that you had after getting your uh, DMP. Can you talk a little bit about that moment and how that's transformed your life? So I went back for my doctorate and um, again, another great mentor. I had won the Dean's Medal of Honor and Judith Karshmeyer, the Dean, calls me up and said, the DMP is starting in two weeks. <laughs> Do you want to go forward with it? We're here to mentor and sponsor you through. You can drop out if you don't like the first semester, but try the first semester and see what you think. I love how she you know, entered that so softly and uh, really pushed me forward into doing something that, you know, again, I was first generation college. My master's was way more than enough for what was needed for myself, for my ego or my family. And um, I talked to my family and then w- went on and pursued the doctorate in nursing practice. And it just changed everything. It really opened my eyes to 
the importance of really, one, staying in the moment of where you are, and then also not bearing the burden of everyone in your whole world on your shoulder. The cleaner you can keep yourself and, and your own sanctity of mind, and the stronger and more resilient you can make yourself with your daily practices, the more you'll enjoy the moments that you're in and then continue them forward. Another thing that I did shortly thereafter was really studied under Dr. Jean Watson and her Caring Science Institute with her Caritas processes of really self-reflection and and self-love. Have to love yourself before you can love others. And again, it just changed my whole existence. I went from being a person who worried about the future consistently and never stayed in the moment and never enjoyed much of anything and was riddled with anxiety to somebody who could just really practice meditation go for a walk in nature and appreciate nature, wake up in the morning and make sure that you just take a three-minute pause for yourself and a few deep breaths to cleanse yourself. And so studying under both my DMP and then Dr. Jean Watson, it kind of expanded my own consciousness around the importance of self-care, self-healing, and really appreciating the moment. It's so powerful when you talk about self-love, especially I think in healthcare where it's almost like seemingly an endless sort of ocean that needs to be shared with patients because it just doesn't end and it goes way beyond what they show up for in terms of uh, their clinical diagnosis. How do you mentor or speak to your teams about how to show up like that at the bedside? We've actually been fortunate enough during this massive pandemic to have some retreats for my teams. You know, listening to the advisory board the other week, they were saying, healthcare does great in a crisis. We're built for a crisis. We love crisis, you know, bring it on. But what do you do in the aftermath of the crisis? That's where things can fall apart. And so here I was lucky enough at Cedar sinai to really do some working with spiritual care and organizational development to create some letting go ceremonies for our staff. And so, again, you can't continue forward if you haven't let go of what actually occurred and what happened to you. And there was so much tragedy that had happened in people's personal lives in conjunction with the pandemic that they had lost loved ones that they hadn't shared with their colleagues because they didn't want to burden their colleagues with one more thing. It was like, oh my gosh, like how horrible to have lost your sister, your brother, your grandmother, whoever it was, and um, still have to show up to work every day. Like, wow. So we went through some physical practices, did some meditation, deep breathing. We did a bowl of dissolving ink so you could put your problem, whatever, whatever you wanted to put in there and let your problem float away and be, become dissolved, right, with the support of everyone that was there gathering with you in that small group. So it was really um, beautiful and intentional. And that's kind of where I took the Gene Watson Caring Science and carried it forward because those are all micro practices that Gene talks about that showing up for people is as simple as, you know, going from one perhaps upset patient and family to going to wash your hands, taking a few deep breaths, stopping at the door before you go in the next patient's room, and then be able to open the door with a fresh presence of yourself. So I think that it needs to be intentional. It can't just be like, show up better, be better. (laughs) You have to do some work around it. And you have to I really believe in toolkits and tool belts, I call it, for leadership. And so you have to provide some exact things that people can do to soothe themselves and make themselves feel better or soothe their patients or soothe the world, whoever that is for them. The mind-body connection is so real and especially in like showing up. And you actually used the word clean earlier. And we have to obviously wash our hands as we go from patient room to patient room. But if we do that consciously with intention, 
there's a real beauty, it seems, that can come from sort of that washing of the hands and then walking into the next patient room, almost like cleansing yourself of your previous experience and starting anew. Yeah, I think people always think it has to be some big act or we have to, you know, pray with people or be in some distinguished manner with them. And really, it's the simplistic micro practices of pulling up a chair next to the bedside, getting at eye level, using a soothing voice tone, connecting with your eyes, right? The face, the human face is so beautiful. So yeah, I think it's all the small things. In my own philosophy, we pay too much attention to the big things. And those are all great and wonderful, but it's the everyday, every moment things that really truly matter. It's interesting now that with all the safety practices that are in place with all the PPE that folks need to wear, and you were saying the face and just the way people connect with one another, it goes beyond the voice, right? So now in this new normal that we live in, how can people show, like physically show their compassion in their expression, in the way that they connect with a patient? Is it as simple as pulling up a chair or are there other things that they can do to kind of humanize that experience? And how do you do that with new team members that come on the floor that maybe they've never even seen the face of their colleagues that they're working with every single day? It's funny you brought that up. Yesterday, we had one of our first in-person meetings, everybody masked, socially distanced, very far apart, very few people in the room. But people, I joined the organization a year and a half ago, and I've never seen people without their mask, right? So we always laugh that you can see the laughter in people's eyes, and we've gotten much better at reading eyes versus reading faces. I have seen some unique approaches with our speech pathologists and some of our hearing impaired clients that they have worn the clear masks. They designed them really early on when they had to make their own and they made their own so that the hearing impaired people could read their lips. But I think we're going to have to be creative on how we come out of this. One thing that you have talked about in the past, and I'd love for our listeners to hear more about this, is the importance of joy in the workplace. Can you share your heart around where joy comes into play and how you can cultivate it, even in light of some really tough times that folks are facing. That's funny when you say that. I think of my ICU that was a COVID ICU, and they were such a tight team before the pandemic. And they said at the height of the pandemic, they they remember cracking up jokes with each other because it was just got to the point where it was almost so you know, devastating in the ICU that they had to lift each other up and keep each other going. And so it became the joke of the day, which seems kind of like an oxymoron to even say that when you're dealing with COVID patients, but they had to figure out ways. And, you know, their sharing of food changed, all their rituals changed, even driving into work was different. But people, people found ways they found, you know, kind of like Secret Santa, they did little gift exchanges with each other to stay in touch. They really leaned on each other. We actually had assistants who would monitor four rooms at a time to be able to see, oh, Joyelle, you know, you you touched the back of your hair. You've contaminated yourself. Go um, exchange or wash your hair. Whatever needs to be done, go help yourself. Or, and um, they'd monitor all the PPE donning and doffing. So another way for them to connect with each other. I, I loved it because they still managed to joke to keep their spirits up as much as they possibly could, because otherwise it would just be devastating. You'd be crying every day, right? So finding joy in all those little moments of when they're passing in the hallways and making the eye contact that we talked about, which was the only thing left. And a lot of them preferred to wear the pappers because you could actually see your whole face and you could smile at each other and make connections with each other. We fortunately here at Cedars, our community pitched in so greatly and donated large amounts of food and um, amazing dishes from these 
incredible restaurants that we have here in in Hollywood and Los Angeles and Beverly Hills. And we had a florist who donated 2,000 flowers. And so during nurse week, David and I, my the chief nursing executive and myself, were able to go hand out flowers to all these nurses. And we have pictures of us with flowers and then with their pappers behind their ICU doors. It's interesting when you talk about the the sort of micro communities that bind together during the sort of extreme trauma-like situations and how they have their routines, they find their moments of joy. And um, then when that extends into the community, being able to sort of feel that embrace and that strengthens you to be able to show up and have another hard day when you know what's ahead. Yeah. There's so much devotion though here. We're so lucky Cedars has legacy. We talked about, you know, the nursing shortage and and we've been fortunate enough here to still recruit experienced nurses, recruit um, travelers. We're going for our sixth magnet journey of nursing excellence. And we have a really strong foundational infrastructure here that attracts talent and keeps tr- talent. And not to say that it hasn't been hard for people. It's definitely been hard and trying, but we haven't experienced what some of the other hospitals across the country have experienced to the same extent. So we're fortunate in that respect. That is incredible because so many folks are talking about the great attrition and how they're scared for the future in light of the shortages uh, in nursing. Can you share the secret sauce? Like, what do you attribute being able to retain and attract the most talented and experienced nurses? I think it's on the shoulders of giants. I think, you know, Dr. Linda Burns Bolton you know, is such a powerhouse in nursing uh, here at Cedars and then also on the national stage. And I think established some really uh, amazing patterns of tuition reimbursement and certification appreciation and always raising the bar for degrees. We have a phenomenal amount of master's prepared and doctorally prepared nurses still at the bedside, not still, most importantly, at the bedside, right? And, um, you know, built on that foundation, use the magnet model to really be able to drive structural empowerment. So we have a great shared governance structure. Our, we bring 200 nurses together once a month and they solve the problems of the organization with and for us. So having all those serious structures in place and great community benefits. So people come here not to just serve Cedars-Sinai internally in the medical center, but also in the community outreach and so I think it's all of the, it's a combination of a lot of little, again, micro practices, here we go again, <laughs> but it's a lot of little things that build teams and then allow those teams that are really successful to flourish. We meet every single week to discuss best practices in the organization. And we have a lot of families that work here too. Like I was just talking to somebody the other day and she's marrying somebody from another unit and his parents both work here. And and then one of my executive directors, Michelle Williams, her mother was a nurse here. Michelle became a nurse here. Her daughter is a nurse here. So it's just great to see. I just love it. That is amazing. That's outstanding. This podcast is called Moments Move Us, Anita. So when you talk about the micro moments that, that like add up and how that that's really sort of the basis of things, I hear you loud and clear. And one of the things that that you just mentioned was gathering together hundreds of nurses to sort of solve critical issues. When people feel empowered to share their voice and there is a responsibility on them from leadership to say, this is a challenge we have. Can you help us? That really shows the respect that you have for that group and it empowers them in a very unique way. Can you share a little bit about that? Because I know across the industry, we've had challenges with nurses feeling heard and empowered to be part of the greater process within their health system. 
they rebuilt their shared governance structure and we turned it into a model of shared leadership. And they developed a care request form. So whether you work in Saturday night at 11 p.m., you can still put in an electronic care request form via the internet. And some of those care request forms were as simple as the yellow PPE gowns were running out of stock. So we went to the cloth gowns and the cloth gowns had issues with snaps and laundering and all that kind of stuff. So they put in a care request form and we were going to move back to the yellow gowns eventually when stock got up, but we were actually able to move that ahead in the journey so that all those little small things that they can help us fix because you work with it and you see it. It's all the way from, you know, a different type of walker that they need. Even simple things like the cafeteria hours, um, working on hiring more people so we can have our cafeteria open at longer hours from the night shift. So all those small things that make a world of difference, vending machines in the critical care tower that have healthy snacks. I love it. <laughs> you know, that's so cool. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. So um, all those, again, little small things that can really make or break your practice environment, your everyday work environment that you have to come to. So letting them try to solve the problems with our support to solve them. Again, all the little things that you have to intentionally take time to sit down and talk about to be able to solve for, and they can usually be solved. And the ones that can't, we, we let the person, the requester know, so sorry, there's not budget for it this year. We'll consider that next fiscal year or whatever it is, but always closing the loop in the communication. We're not perfect at that yet by any means, but we're definitely on the journey to getting better at it. And that's what's the most important is always acknowledging that and kind of improving you know, I think as leaders, sometimes we have a hard time saying we don't know the answer to something. <laughs> but of course, we don't always know the answer. Can you share a little bit about your work with ANA California? I know that's something that you're really passionate about and have done a lot of amazing things there, especially around DEI. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been an honor and a privilege to serve for the last two years. And I'm going to serve for two more years as the president in the state of California with our 400 amazing nurses that we have here in the state and 4 million in the nation and giving a voice. So we did a listening tour across the state in 2019 before we got shut down. And one of the things that we heard loud and clear after George Floyd and everything that had happened was racism was still rampant in healthcare in our communities. And what could we do to solve that in for nursing and healthcare? So from that ANA California, we developed a task force and brought together thought leaders from across the state of California in nursing and outside of nursing, but that were really passionate and educated around DEI and diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And we developed a, a questionnaire to kind of do a full assessment of the individual. So assess the individual and assess that individual's perception of their organization and then a toolkit uh, with all kinds of resources pulled in. So you get a score from what your assessment is. Then you go to the toolkit and figure out what you want to do. And we gave you actionable items that you could do. Perhaps find out if you had a diversity and inclusion office. If you did, sign up for a meeting with them. Figure out where you could look at it from the individual perspective or from the manager perspective or from the organizational perspective. So we hope to glean some information. And is the toolkit helpful? We've had some experts in DEI look at it and they say that it's uh, really robust. So we're, we're hoping that the, we're doing a pilot project right now with three hospitals in Southern California with their either their shared governance councils or their management teams to see if it's impactful at all for them and what can we improve before we launch it on a broader scale. But those things are really important in trying to take on the issues that are important to the state of California, the nation, and nursing. After George Floyd, I imagine 
your teams probably had a, a, a lot of feelings around what was going on on the national stage. And I think for a lot of people, it was sort of like, well, yes, of course this is going on. But now it was so o- overtly public and recorded that people sort of had this aha moment that maybe hadn't had one before. And I'm just curious, was there a defining moment for you or um, an interaction that happened during that time that really inspired you to sort of take this on at the ANA? Not so much a defining moment, just an, an understanding of the significance of the problem. You know, sometimes just because we don't perceive it in our personal life doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And I think a lot of people had thought, oh, there's great work going on around that and realized, oh, it's not enough work. And I've been privileged to work in organizations that have diversity, inclusion, and equity officers and have already started on groups of diversity and inclusion. So my perception is a little bit different than others, and I own that. But realized with the listening tour that it was really important in a lot of different areas. And there were people that weren't having discussions about it at all (laughs) that thought it wasn't a problem. And so, you know, great things happened from that. I was just thinking of an example in our San Diego chapter, the director of public policy right now for ANA California, she started a group of nurses that went out with their backpacks to the demonstrations and did, did healthcare, you know, scrapes and falls and blood pressure issues and were able to triage people because there wasn't enough healthcare tents to be able to aid the, any of the victims of the protests. So her team went out and they did hundreds of different protests and they worked their shifts at the hospital and then they went out at night when the protests were happening. It was just profound to see the care that they could give. But they felt as nurses, it was kind of their moral obligation, which I thought was just so profound. So again, all those little things that add up to be bigger things that bubble up the issues and make people start to take notice and listen, I think is really important. So very powerful. One of the things that we talk a lot about uh, here is around feeling seen. And you've alluded to that in a number of different ways. Can you share, Anita, a time when you felt really seen by someone else and how that impacted you? There's so many times, you know, I I always believe in keep your head down and do great work and you'll be noticed. (laughs) So with the Dean's Medal of Honor, when I was in my master's, there were students that weren't able to find clinical placement. We all know clinical placement is such an issue, right? And I was fortunate enough to be at Stanford at the time, so worked diligently to get the five of them placed. And from that, my instructors, Mary Lou Dinatelli, she's so amazing at the University of San Francisco, she wrote this beautiful nomination for the Dean's Medal of Honor. And I was like, Mary Lou, you didn't have to do that. I was just doing what I needed to be doing. And she's like, no, you don't understand. You're advocating for the profession. This is so beautiful. So I felt really seen then. You know, it was really great. I know how much time it takes to write a nomination and to make sure that somebody actually gets that. So I was like, wow, Mary Lou, that's so amazing. We still keep in contact. She's one of my greatest mentors. That's really admirable, Anita. That's beautiful. And the other piece that I'm curious about is you have a lot of people that kind of report up through you and, and you work within a pretty large organization. How do you ensure that the amazing people that are on the front lines are feeling seen and recognized for the work that they're doing on a regular basis? I love formalized programs. So, you know, we utilize the DAISY Foundation program here for recognition. There's Cedars is amazing. There's multiple forms of recognition. There's a President's Award. There's standing ovations. They're always nominating each other, which, I again, I think contributes to that whole beautiful ecosystem of recognition. 
But the Daisy Awards just always bring me to tears. I can't even I can't even go up to the unit and read the letter because it sucks. They're so beautiful. The nominations that our families and patients and colleagues make for each other. And one of the recent ones was a nurse uh, patient had. Uh, it's going to make me cry to even talk about it. A patient had passed away, and the nurse drove the family Bible two hours to the family to get it back to them. Oh, that is so beautiful. The patient had passed and they had left the Bible. And so the nurse drove it back to the family. I was like, wow, that is incredible. I mean, that is that really is incredible. What a story of caring for someone after they pass and, and for their extended family. My father suffers from a chronic illness and we've had a lot of experiences with caregivers in my life. And it always amazed me when the people taking care of him are almost equally concerned for my mom or me and and trying to make sure that we're comfortable. And it makes a huge difference, I think, in an experience. I had another time where a diabetes nurse, a pregnant mom got discharged from the hospital, but they didn't have time to do all the diabetes education. And the nurse again drove out. She could do it from an outpatient basis, but she didn't have to by any means. And she drove like two hours and two hours back to give the mom at home diabetes education. I was like, that is incredible (laughs) from the goodness of your heart. But she wanted to make sure she knew she had a new baby. She was having diabetic issues and she wanted to make sure that she was safe and secure and that the baby was healthy. So she drove out there by herself and gave the diabetes education and made sure the mom was all tucked in with the baby. It was like so beautiful. What an inspiration. That's what it's all about. That's, That's why we're all here. It's just stories like that that just make you feel so proud to be in this incredible industry, caring for people in a very expansive way. So Anita, what are you excited for about 2022? What are the things that you're looking forward to that are on the horizon? I just hope that everybody has really come to understand with this new variant, the importance of masking and social distancing and yes, have a holiday, but stay in your bubble. (laughs) And that we just come into the new year with a kind of a new awareness and appreciation for life and love and that we um, get to travel again and get to have celebrations together without masks, (laughs) maybe by the end of the year, right? And that we stay hopeful. I think it's really important that we stay hopeful and create new things. There's just so much innovation. I think COVID, if anything, was the gift of innovation, And learning that we can innovate around anything. So, wow, if we can do that, what else can we do when we don't have a pandemic or we ease the burden of the pandemic? So I'm really looking forward to this next year. I think it's going to be amazing. COVID has made us so much more nimble and flexible and innovative and creative. And I just hope that we can take all that and package it and bundle it and love on it and build it into the new year. Here, here, And that breaking down of silos, I think, will hopefully um, stay with us for at least a little bit longer so that innovation can sort of come to fruition more quickly like it has been over the last couple of years. We've moved light years faster than we've ever moved in healthcare. Well, thank you so much, Anita. The last part of our conversation today, we're going to take a beat and I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions about you as a person that might be a little bit less known by your colleagues. So the first one is, what do less than 10% of your work family know about you? I'm an open book, so everybody knows everything about me. (laughs) 
So there's nothing? People probably say they know too much about me. Um, The one thing I I think that I've actually shared with quite a few people now, but my husband and I are getting into, now that uh, our children are a little bit older, is we've gotten into sailing again. And it's just been so much fun to have. Like, it's an outlet that's like, COVID okay. (laughs) You can go sailing because you're outside and you can just get away. And it's something we did like before we had kids. So it was great to get back to it. And we bought a boat and we have it up in San Francisco. So we're down in LA and we get to fly back to San Francisco, which I just love. And uh, it just, again, opens up that creativity and that love for nature and being outside. And I think we as humans forget, and maybe all our walks on the beaches lately have helped us, but I just that it's so important to commingle with nature. And we've built ourselves into a bit of a concrete jungle sometimes. So just get out, get outside, (laughs) get out of your house. (laughs) (laughs) Just breathe outside by the water. That is an amazing feeling. If you could be exceptionally great at one thing, what would it be? I would love time to write or embrace the creative side of myself more. So write or paint. Or when you said that, we have a baby grand piano that I bought for the kids and they both play. So it's amazing when everybody gets home and I get to hear it. But I've never taken the time to learn I used to play a little bit of organ when I was younger, but I never played piano. And I would just love to be a pianist and play piano, but more importantly, embrace the whole creative part of myself, writing and painting and and creative piano and things that like, wouldn't it be great to bring a guitar to the beach or on the sailboat and be able to sing songs? I love singing. My whole family does. So sing songs and play and relax with people and gather people around music. I think that'd just be so beautiful. That sounds amazing. I'm also just envisioning sort of like a ukulele and on the beach in Hawaii or something like that. I have a ukulele. My daughter does. I need to steal it and learn how to play it, right? (laughs) A good entry instrument. (laughs) Yes. It's light. It's small. You can do it. You could definitely bring it to the beach. A piano is a little more difficult. (laughs) You said that you love singing. Is that something that you all do together? Yeah, we have. I I was just thinking we have a book of Christmas carols and we have a bunch of family uh, friends in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And so on Christmas Eve, we're all gathering. And part of the night is sitting around the piano singing Christmas carols. Love that. Final question. What is your favorite vacation destination? I absolutely love going to Paris, but in Europe in general, I've traveled a lot in Europe and I don't know, there's something that calls me there. I love the museums. My whole family, we were museumholics. I love history. So getting to see the museums and just getting to understand the the richness of their history. That's what I like to do when I travel is really figure out the culture and go off on our own on the unbeaten path. Anita, thank you so much for spending time with us today. What a great treat to get to have a wonderful conversation. Enjoy the moment. The next one will create itself. I'm Rebecca Mutter. Thanks for listening to Moments Move Us. Remember, When you put people first, your actions can move others in unexpected ways. Be sure to follow wherever you get your audio.